This is The Rounds Table. Hello, listeners, and welcome back for another week on The Rounds Table. Thank you for joining us. I'm Kieran Quinn, your host, a general internal medicine resident at the University of Toronto. This week, we have a great show for you. The title is Pess It and Patch It, the role of emergency care in a variety of different emergency settings. And who better to take us through an emergency setting than my good friend, Dr. Lauren Lacroix. She is an emergency medicine resident at the University of Ottawa and also a fellow in resuscitation and reanimation at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Lauren, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kieran. So we're going to start with my article this week. It's so hot you can barely touch it. Can you feel it? It's called The Pesset Trial. It was published on October 20th, 2016, entitled The Prevalence of Pulmonary Embolism Among Patients Hospitalized for Syncope. First author is Paolo Prendoni, one of the great Italian researchers. This study has generated a lot of press and a lot of controversy around the medical world, so we thought it would be a great opportunity to try to accelerate its coverage on the rounds table. Lots of buzz. All right, Kieran, so uh, tell us what the bottom line is for this article. Well, Lauren, in this multi-center cross-sectional study of 560 Italian patients admitted for their first episode of syncope, pulmonary embolism was identified in 17% of these individuals, including in 13% of individuals who had an alternative explanation for their syncope as deemed by their physician. Those are pretty high numbers. Why did you choose this article? Well, as you and I both know, and probably anybody else that practices in the emergency department or in inpatient medicine, pulmonary embolism is one of those dreaded diagnoses because we all know it can be very life-threatening, but it's often elusive in its diagnosis since so many other conditions cause similar presentations in our patients, especially when it comes to syncope. We're always trying to figure out what the cause of somebody's syncope is and pulmonary embolisms in the back of our mind. Now, we don't actually know the prevalence of pulmonary embolism in patients who present with syncope, so this study sought to quantify that. And overall, the best we know currently is that the prevalence of PE, or pulmonary embolism, in the United States is somewhere between 5 and 10%. Definitely something that we struggle with almost daily in the emergency department. Uh, let's talk about the methods. So what was the design of the study, and where did it take place? Well, as I mentioned, this was a multi-center cross-sectional study, so it just took a brief slice of time in prospective patients coming through the emergency department, and it was conducted in 11 academic and community hospitals in Italy. All right, and who were the patients included in the study? Well, the patients uh, who they included were adults, any adult over the age of 18, who presented to the emergency department, and this is very important, they were admitted as an inpatient for syncope, not discharged home. And this syncope was deemed by the physician who saw them not to be due to seizure, stroke, or head trauma, so those patients would have been excluded. And it was conducted between March 2012 and October 2014. And it did not include individuals who were discharged from the ED, but whom presented with syncope. So syncope they defined as a transient loss of consciousness with rapid onset, short duration, so less than a minute, with spontaneous resolution, so they woke up on their own, and without obvious causes, such as an epileptic seizure, a stroke, or head trauma. They excluded patients who presented and had a known episode previously of syncope, or they were on anticoagulation therapy, were looking for pulmonary embolism, which is highly unlikely in somebody on anticoagulation, or whom were pregnant, as this is a different type of population they were interested in. 
and they systematically conducted a diagnostic algorithm to investigate syncope, and they based this investigative algorithm on the 2014 guidelines from the European Society of Cardiology, it's an Italian study, and they completed these investigations within 48 hours of admission. And the entire workup included a very focused history and physical exam and basic blood work with a chest x-ray and an ECG, investigating the usual potential causes of syncope. So whether that was neurogenic causes, orthostatic causes, or cardiovascular causes. And then what they did for these patients who were admitted, they calculated the pretest probability using the Wells score. We all know the Wells score, right? Signs and symptoms of a DVT, alternative diagnosis less likely than PE, tachycardic with a heart rate greater than 100, immobilization or surgery within four weeks, past history of venous thromboembolism, hemoptysis or active cancer, and then they also conducted a D-dimer on all patients who were admitted. Tell us about the intervention. What was the primary question of the study? So what they did with the Wells score for patients, and this is very important to understand, they stratified patients into PE likely or PE unlikely based on the Wells score. And then they also looked at their D-dimer results, as in a D-dimer elevated or D-dimer not elevated, less than or equal to four was their threshold cutoff. Not age-adjusted, just as an arbitrary threshold of four or more or four or less. So if they were likely, by either the Wells score or an elevated D-dimer, to have a pulmonary embolism, they underwent CT pulmonary angiogram or a VQ scan for those individuals who had concomitant renal impairment and couldn't handle the contrast dye load to investigate the presence of a pulmonary embolism. And the size of this PE was also estimated. So if you were unlikely based on the Wells score or D-dimer cutoffs, then you didn't undergo those investigations. Okay, and what were the primary outcomes? So the primary outcome was to look at the prevalence of pulmonary embolism among patients with the first episode of syncope. And then as a secondary outcome, they also quantified the thrombotic burden of the embolisms that occurred. And let's get into the meat of it. What were the main findings of the PESIT study? Their average patient was a 76-year-old woman who presented to the emergency department with her first episode of syncope. And it was usually an undetermined cause. That was based on the history and physical and limited investigations. Um, and typically, these individuals, or this 76-year-old woman, presented with tachypnea, tachycardia, or with signs of a DVT. So let's get into the actual findings of the study. So two about 2,500 patients or individuals presented to the emergency department with syncope, not necessarily their first episode. 72% of these patients, 1,800 of them, were discharged home. We don't know much about what that population looked like. Overall, though, seven, about 700 patients, or 25% of the initial uh, cohort that presented, uh, were admitted. But of the admitted patients, about one-fifth of them were excluded due to the exclusion criteria that we described above. Mainly, it was people who were on anticoagulation for atrial fibrillation. So the majority uh, were over 70 years old. We do know that the patients discharged from the emergency department were more likely to be younger, about 54 years old on average. The 70-year-olds or, or greater were admitted typically for trauma that was related to a fall. They had some sort of severe coexisting condition. The physicians weren't able to uh, identify a clear explanation for the syncope, or they were concerned they had a high probability of cardiac syncope. So this is really the cohort who we're looking at. Now, out of the 560 people who were admitted in the study, 330 were classified as PE unlikely, based on what we talked about before, and they didn't get any further investigations. So this left 230 patients, 40% of the sample, who received imaging for pulmonary embolism. 
So of the, the 230 patients who underwent the imaging, how many were found to have a pulmonary embolism? Yeah, so this is where it gets really interesting. 97 of those patients, which is 42% of the 230, had a confirmed pulmonary embolism. And of the initial cohort who presented and were admitted, 17% of them had a pulmonary embolism. So about one in six, right? Remarkable numbers. One in six of these admitted patients had a pulmonary embolism. 40% of them were in the main pulmonary artery, and only about 7% were actually subsegmental PEs. So these sometimes, you know, PEs we see that we're not really sure what to do about it. We're actually a very small minority of this study. And interestingly, 13% of the individuals who had an alternative explanation for syncope actually ended up having a PE. Now, whether that was incidental or whether it was the cause of their syncope, you know, many would argue that some of these pulmonary emboli were too small to cause syncope. But either way, we just know that those are the numbers and that's what we get. So those are definitely some pretty concerning numbers. They make you stop and think. Are there any interesting points or observations that you wanted to discuss about the study? Right, Lauren. So there's too many to actually talk <laughs> about on the show today. And this, I think this is the primary reason why this study has made such a stir in the medical literature. But I think the most important point to talk about is there are multiple reasons why the prevalence of pulmonary embolism in this particular study design might be overestimated. And we need to be cautious about uh, how we think about the prevalence of PE overall. So for one, the denominator of the patients doesn't include any of those patients who were discharged. So really, if you if you had a whole bunch of patients present, even with their first episode of syncope to the emergency department, which is really what we would be interested in knowing about the prevalence of pulmonary embolism in that patient population, that's not what this study is looking at. We're only looking at admitted patients. Number two, any patient who had a previous episode of syncope, regardless of the cause, were excluded from this study, right? So that may actually mean you find more pulmonary emboli in patients who present with syncope for any reason, but we're not really sure how that affects overall the prevalence, so keep that in mind. And then lastly, it's an interesting point about measuring the D-dimer arbitrarily, regardless of what the individual's Wells score um, would be. So typically, you know, we're taught to use the Wells score. If it's low, then you, you can use a D-dimer to exclude PE, and usually we send people home in that setting. In this case, we measured it in all patients who were admitted to the hospital, um, and then pursued further imaging if it was elevated. And that was in about 60% of patients had a D-dimer positive only. So it's an interesting use of the D-dimer, albeit it identified a bunch of people who had pulmonary embolism who may or may not have otherwise undergone further imaging. So that's an interesting point. And kind of coupled to that, this has nothing to do really with the prevalence, but an inter another interesting thing to think about is that the use of CT pulmonary angiogram as a consequence of this D-dimer approach is probably a lot higher than we would need overall. For example, a lot of emergency physicians are skilled and trained in using ultrasounds for the legs to look for clot. And if you saw one in the legs, you wouldn't care really if they had a PE or not because you'd anticoagulate them and you'd save them the radiation and contrast dye. So it's not so much about the prevalence there, but about the clinical application of testing and, and how to approach patients in this regard. And then the last thing I wanted to point out is that this study doesn't report the rates of contrast-induced nephropathy, which is a risk for, you know, following the, the load of contrast that these patients would get for a CT pulmonary angiogram. 
So I think it just, again, highlights the grain of salt you should take with the idea of a systematic implementation of these types of investigations, because you are exposing your patients to risk of radiation and contrast dye. And I would have liked to have seen that reported in this study. So can you summarize your take on the balance of strengths and weaknesses? Well, overall, I mean, this is a fascinating study for sure. It's really interesting. And I think anytime a study is really interesting like this, it raises a lot of questions and causes a lot of stir. And it really, I think to the core of it, it gets talks about a systematic approach to pulmonary embolism diagnosis, who, you know, you're considering in patients hospitalized for first episode of syncope. But I think you really have to take into account this inherent selection bias resulting in potential overestimation of the prevalence um, and then the, the balancing risks of uh, the CTPA and contrast testing. So overall, I think the generalizability of the findings are a little bit limited and you, you really have to just apply this study to the patients who they included, those being admitted to hospital for first episode of uh, syncope. All right. To summarize then, what are the main learning points that we can take away from this article? As I mentioned in the introduction, I think this study study serves to really highlights the ongoing diagnostic challenges in, in the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. The PESIT study likely overestimates its prevalence, but other studies may equally underestimate it if, you know, they they landed on a diagnosis more likely precluded their further investigation of a pulmonary embolism. And as I mentioned, 13% of these patients had an alternative explanation for, for PE, but actually had a PE. So I think overall, you know, you, you need to have really careful thought about how to approach these patients. And also, again, who you should order D-dimers in. It may or may not be a, an effective strategy to work these patients up. And we sort of, you know, we need to have a, a sober second thought about it. Mm-hmm. I think I know the answer to this one, but will the study change the way that you practice? Well, probably not. I think overall, I try to, you know, incorporate the story that the patient tells me and their underlying risk factors uh, when suspecting pulmonary embolism. But, you know, I might consider ordering D-dimers in a select subset of patients who, you know, are admitted for first episode of, of syncope and I don't really have a good explanation that fits or sits well with me. I may consider doing a D-dimer and if elevated, it might be enough to justify further investigation Uh, And I just might identify, you know, one in five or one in six of them as having a pulmonary embolism. I don't know. What do you think? They're definitely high numbers, pretty shockingly high numbers, but I'm not sure what to do with those numbers from the emergency department. As you mentioned, the huge majority of these patients were actually discharged home from the eMERGE. And so uh, I'm not really sure how to apply these results to my practice. I don't think that it's going to change the way that I view syncope, but it's definitely something to keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, highly dependent on where your practice and where your patients are. Well, thanks, Lauren. Uh, I really appreciate you taking us through that. So let's talk about your article this week. So we chose the platelet transfusion versus standard care after acute stroke due to spontaneous cerebral hemorrhage associated with antiplatelet therapy. (gasps) A mouthful. (laughs) It's called the PATCH study. Much easier. It's actually a trial. And the first author is Baharoglu, um, and it was published June 25th, 2016 in The Lancet. So Lauren, let's get into it. What is the bottom line for this article? So this was an international multi-center open-label randomized control trial of 190 patients taking antiplatelet therapy who presented with acute spontaneous primary intracerebral hemorrhage. They found that platelet transfusion was inferior to standard care for death or disability. Wow. So why did you choose this article? Is it applicable to the practice which you work with? 
Uh, yeah, so I chose this article because hemorrhagic stroke uh, accounts for about 20% of strokes and half of all stroke deaths and is also associated with a significant amount of disability in survivors. So it had been postulated or theorized that antiplatelet therapy may increase the incidence and worsen outcomes of intracerebral hemorrhage by increasing the volume growth due to platelet dysfunction. So no one was really sure whether platelet transfusion would be beneficial therapeutically in clinical settings. So this was the first well-designed randomized trial investigating the effectiveness of platelet transfusion to reduce patient-centered outcomes like death or dependence. And do you see these types of patients and struggle with the question of whether you should be giving them platelet transfusions in your emergency department? Definitely. So it's something that you, you feel helpless about when these patients present. And so if we had a way to give them better outcomes, looking at these really important patient-centered ones, not necessarily just the measure of their bleed on the CT scan, if there was something that we could do to improve their outcomes, then that would be a huge benefit. Well, the rationale sounds sound, so take us through what the study design was and where did it take place? So this was a, as I mentioned, a randomized open-label parallel group trial and took place in 36 hospitals in the Netherlands, 13 hospitals in the UK, and 11 hospitals in France. And who were the patients they included in this trial? So these patients were uh, adult patients, so greater than 18 years of age, on antiplatelet therapy, so aspirin, clopidogrel, or dipyridamol. Uh, who had been taking it for seven days or more, presenting with a non-traumatic supratentorial intracerebral hemorrhage with a Glasgow coma scale greater than eight. Excluded patients were anyone with epidural or subdural hematomas, anyone taking vitamin K antagonists, so warfarin or coumadin, anyone who in whom death appeared imminent, or a planned surgical evacuation within 24 hours. And I think it's also important to point out that patients who were thrombocytopenic at baseline were also excluded. Is that correct? It is, yeah. Okay, so so who are the patients then that actually were included after they've set these boundaries? So the majority of their patients were, were men, and the mean age of the included patients was 74 years. Uh, 40% of them had a history of stroke, and the majority had a history of hypertension or dyslipidemia. The great majority were taking just COX inhibitors, so aspirin, and not using dual antiplatelet therapy. So what did they do as far as their intervention when it comes to platelet transfusion? So the patients were randomized to receive platelet transfusion of one adult dose if they were taking aspirin, or two platelet units, so two adult doses, if they were taking clopidogrel or dipyridamol. Okay. And then what was their primary outcome? What did they seek to measure the effect of their intervention? So the primary outcome of this study was a shift towards death or dysfunction on a modified Rankin scale. Uh, So as I mentioned, importantly, a patient-centered outcome. Uh, They also looked at survival, poor outcomes, so the modified Rankin scale of four to six, the median absolute intracerebral hemorrhage growth after 24 hours on imaging was also recorded. And just for those of us uh, who are not so familiar with the modified Rankin scale, can you just take us through how this is a patient-centered outcome uh, scale? So the modified Rankin scale essentially looks at the uh, level of dependence that you have. So a score of zero is no symptoms at all, up to a score of six, which is dead. And usually a score of one or two is uh, fairly independent at baseline. So anything greater than three, you tend to need quite a bit of support. Um, How often did they measure this outcome? So this was measured three months after randomization, after they received the platelet transfusion. And then what did they find? 
So interestingly, the adjusted odds ratio for death or dependence at three months was 2.05. So patients who received platelet transfusion were actually more likely to have the outcome of death or dependence at three months, um, which I think was surprising for this study. So the absolute risk reduction for death at three months was 9% if you did not receive the platelet transfusion, um, which gave us a number needed to harm with platelet transfusion of 11 for death, which is a pretty solid number. The number needed to harm for disability in patients who had received platelet transfusion was six. Wow. So a really best intention approach with giving platelets, but it looks like it actually causes harm as opposed to even just not making any difference at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Any interesting points you wanted to make about the study or or anything else that caught your eye? Interestingly, the trial was uh, not blinded. So it was an open label trial. And this may have been unavoidable. Obviously, giving platelets, consenting someone to receive a blood product is something that they may not have been able to change. They, They did try to optimize that by blinding the analysis, which I thought was very well done. Uh, A second point was that the majority of the included patients uh, had been taking aspirin. So some questions as to the generalizability of the the results, but it is the most commonly used antiplatelet agent that most of the patients that I see are on. So I think that that doesn't uh, take away from the study at all. So as I mentioned, the, the findings actually contrast the hypothesized mechanism of action of the platelet transfusion, which the authors bring up in their discussion. Yeah. So like that was surprising for me. Do you or do they, you know, speculate as to why that might be? So there are a few questions. They're wondering about hemorrhagic transformation of an infarct rather than a true intracerebral hemorrhage. So whether the included patients actually had an ischemic event and that with hemorrhagic transformation, and that's why they had poor outcomes. There was some postulation about whether there was an increased risk of thrombosis with platelet transfusion or whether giving platelets was enough to reverse the effects of the antiplatelet therapy at all. So all related to the platelet prothrombotic state and causing worse outcomes. Even if it was a hemorrhagic transformation, you might be worsening their ischemia from their initial... That's the the point that they're getting at. But again, these are all theories, just hypotheses yeah. that uh, are being brought up. Yeah, hand-waving, but they, they, sound, they sound reasonable as, as a plausible mechanism. Mm-hmm. Great. Any important limitations that we haven't discussed? Uh, so one thing that I noticed was that uh, there is a possibility of selection bias in this study. So there were no screening logs. We can't really tell who was excluded prior to randomization, for what reason these patients might have been excluded. Very difficult in a large multi-center international trial to keep track of all of the patients presenting with uh, intracerebral hemorrhage, but would have been nice to see. So summarize it all. Is it a good study? Is it a bad study? What do you think? So I think overall, this is the best available evidence that we have regarding the use of platelets in intracerebral hemorrhage. And based on the results of this study, we cannot recommend giving platelet transfusion to these patients. So despite having a small sample size and some questions of generalizability to all platelet therapy, I think a similar RCT is currently underway. So there is another randomized control trial that's mentioned in the discussion that hopefully will confirm these findings and uh, answer the question that we have. And so just to sort of bring it all together, what, what do you think the main learning points for our listeners are to take away? So based on the results of the PATCH trial, platelet transfusion seems to be inferior to standard care for people taking antiplatelet therapy before having an intracerebral hemorrhage. Well, thank you, Lauren. That was a fascinating study. Unexpected results, which always makes for an interesting finding, albeit unfortunate in this case that harm was delivered, but maybe we learned some very valuable lessons from it. 
Well, let's get to my favorite part of the show. As you all know, this is Lauren's first time on the show, and uh, you know what I like to say, you're not allowed to say it's your favorite part of the show, Lauren, but it's the good stuff segment where we talk about what's making news, what's interesting us in the medical literature outside of the formal uh, scholarly pathways. Lauren, what are you reading about this week? Well, it's daylight savings time starting in Canada just today as we're recording this. But one interesting piece of news that I'd read is that daylight savings time when it ends in the spring is actually detrimental to our health. Hmm. Studies have shown that there's actually more motor vehicle collisions in the spring in the week after daylight savings time ends, thought to be due to lack of sleep and the, the change in the time. So might be something to consider if we ever were to get rid of daylight savings time altogether. Sounds dangerous. I wonder what the flip side is in the fallback where we are entering right now. I wonder if it's safer to be on the roads. Well, as someone who was just recently in a collision two days ago. My gosh. I, that's a question I would like to have answered. <laughs> <laughs> All right, researchers, get to it and get answering the question for Lauren. Uh, well, speaking of sickness, my topic this week was about the high costs of not offering paid sick leave. So we are entering influenza season in Canada and North America. We are also entering the dreaded norovirus uh, season. And I don't know if those of you familiar with a U.S. food chain called Chipotle had a huge outbreak of norovirus that was associated with their chain last year. And as a response to that, this year they're offering paid sick leave to all of its employees in the United States. So if you're sick, they're saying, they're encouraging, and they're paying you not to show up because of the fear for spreading uh, infection around the workplace. This is not just applicable to Chipotle, it's applicable to a whole bunch of different places. And interestingly, about half of all employees uh, of either restaurants or hospitals go to work when they have the flu or the cold, according to a recent poll. So places where you'd think you'd really want to have sick people not <laughs> going to work are showing up. And we don't really know all the reasons why, there's a lot of reasons why. But the article goes on to talk about how, you know, many different countries, Canada included, do not offer or do not mandate paid sick leave. So people who can't afford to be away from work often come to work uh, when they're sick. And unfortunately, this seems to, f to include more likely single working moms and low income individuals. And that might be because, you know, higher paying jobs have a more attractive benefits package and may offer their workers more paid leave because they can afford to. Mm. But I think it's an, it brings up an interesting point about whether we should introduce mandated paid sick leave across the, the country and what that effect will have on healthcare costs as a sort of a second and third order effect. Yeah, definitely a really interesting topic. I know similarly, I often struggle with going into work and working with people who are sick the spread of disease is, uh, is something that's really important. So anything that we can do to try to curtail that or prevent it is going to be super important as well. Well, thank you, Lauren, for joining us on the show today. I hope, listeners, you enjoyed it. It was a really interesting show for me, and uh, I had a great time. I hope you come back and join us soon. Thanks so much for having me. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable. Or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.